welcome to Counterpunch Radio. My name is Eric Dreitzer. I want to thank you so much for tuning in to episode 79. Got a great program ready for you this week. Always, always uh, confident that you're going to like our guests. And I think this week is no exception. Really, really interesting uh, topics that we're going to cover. But before we can jump to that, let me do the usual song and dance, my weekly hawking of the Counterpunch wares. Um, you know, like a good podcasting carnival barker, I would urge you to step right up and check out the Counterpunch print magazine. Uh, a couple of people emailed me the last couple of weeks saying that the, the podcast really uh, more or less peer pressured them into buying the magazine, and I totally endorse that. Uh, think about print. Think about print publications. How many of them can you really name anymore among the left, on the left? I, I think... I mean, gosh, probably maybe one or two. Uh, Counterpunch is one of the few still printing on paper. So uh, it's something to take advantage of because who knows how much longer uh, they'll be printing the magazine. Who knows how much longer any of us won't be rotting in a prison if the Trump administration gets their way. So in any event, uh, I would urge you to support Counterpunch with a subscription to the magazine. You could also donate if you prefer not to get the magazine. You can donate through the PayPal, uh, picking up the phone, calling Becky in the uh, office in California. Uh, what else do I like to say? Harass Jeff Sinclair on Twitter. Maybe attack Joshua Frank on Facebook. Whatever it takes. But um, I would urge you to consider doing that. We have a witch hunt going on. Uh, McCarthyism 2.0. Counterpunch has already been targeted. Many of your other favorite left media outlets have been targeted. I think it's time that we make sure that we fight back and fight back effectively by digging in our heels and protecting our spaces online and in uh, in the, in the left media in general. Uh, also, of course, positive reviews on iTunes, on Google Play, on uh, Stitcher, on any of the other platforms where people are listening to podcasts. That's always appreciated. Uh, believe it or not, as narcissistic as it may be, I do read those reviews and I get a little warm and fuzzy feeling when they're positive. So uh, appreciate those people who have already done that. Uh, if you want to, if you want to do that and you know help boost the popularity of the show, it's always greatly appreciated appreciated. You can also find all my work on my website, stopimperialism.org. Just want to give a little plug to that. All right. Uh, all of that out of the way. Uh, I want to turn to my guest this week. I'm very happy to welcome Dr. Rebecca Gordon onto the program. Uh, Rebecca is a uh, regular contributor at Tom Dispatch. Her work also appears in The Nation in many other publications as well. She is in the uh, in that hallowed space of the ivory tower out there at the University of San Francisco in the philosophy department, but she's also a real person, imagine that, having done a lot of real uh, uh, activism work on the ground that we'll get into, but I also want to highlight two very important books from uh, from Dr. Gordon. Uh, the new one, the one you definitely need to pick up a copy of, American Nuremberg, the U.S. officials who should stand trial for post-9-11 war crimes, and the previous book, Mainstreaming Torture, Ethical Approaches in the Post-9-11 United States. You can find the stuff on the website mainstreamingtorture.org, and you can follow her on Twitter at Amer Nuremberg. That's A-M-E-R Nuremberg on Twitter. All of that out of the way. Wow, Rebecca, thanks for coming on the show. <laughs> Well, thank you for having me. That's quite an introduction. I know. I feel like I might have to edit half of the crap I was saying. <laughs> um, but let's 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 talk about some important, uh, you know, some important issues here. Um, 
I want to start by asking you a little bit about the book because I, I don't normally, you know, immediately jump into plugging the product or whatever, mm-hmm. but I think it's a good way of setting up a lot of our conversation here. So there's a lot in that title, American Nuremberg, the U.S. officials who should stand trial for post 9-11 war crimes. Tell us a little bit about the genesis of this book, what drove you to write it, and in the course of researching, in the course of writing, uh, any conclusions, any realizations, any breakthroughs that you had? All right. Thank you. So it's a very odd genesis. This is not how books usually come about, but I was actually plugging or talking about the material in mainstreaming torture on the radio quite a bit after it came out. And I got a call from David Talbot, who, among other things, is the author of The Devil's Chessboard and Season of the Witch, which is a history of the 1978-79 years in San Francisco. And he said, I have a book. I I heard you on the radio. I have a book. I want you to write. And it's called American Nuremberg. And he said, and Glenn Glenn Greenwald was my first choice, but he's not available. So I thought perhaps (laughs) you would do it. So, So I have to tell you that at the beginning, I was not very happy with the title because the idea of comparing the actions of the United States in the wars that we've undertaken the so-called wars we've undertaken and the real ones in the post 9-11 period and comparing that with the crimes of the Holocaust was struck me as being perhaps an overreach. And I, you know, my dad was raised Orthodox Jew. He fought in World War II. He was actually a member of the OSS. And to the day before he died, he refused to tell me what he had done for them. For for your listeners who don't know, that was the predecessor organization to the CIA. Yes. And I knew that he would not like the title of this book. But the more I dug into it and the more I renewed my understanding of the Nuremberg process, the more I realized how absolutely appropriate the title was. Because what happened at Nuremberg was for the very first time in human history, nations came together, and I by no means hold the great powers that defeated the Nazis as blameless or uh, innocent of war crimes in any way, but these four nations came together, and they attempted to establish a way of saying that international law, and specifically the international law of war, is real law, and that it violators should face real consequences. And they had a terrible problem that they were facing because here they had won the war, they had all these people they had captured, what could they do? And there was a lot of discussion among them and there were people who thought the answer was simply execute them, that any attempt to give them a trial would simply give them a public platform for once again expressing the ideas that had led to the Third Reich and so forth. But in fact, the, the, um, the other side of that argument prevailed. And so then the next question was, how can we hold a series of trials that don't simply look like victor's justice? Like we won, so we get to make the rules. And in fact, one of the biggest critiques of Nuremberg, which you will still hear today, is that they invented crimes that weren't crimes at the time when the Nazis committed them. The biggest one being what was called at that time crimes against humanity. 
which was not on anybody's law books at the time, but which was created as a way of describing the complete eradication of various groups of people, including, of course, Jews, Roma people, homosexuals, people with disabilities, and so forth. So the more I dug into it, the more I realized that in a world in which my country has the most tremendous military power that the world has ever seen, and in which, as I wrote at the time, it appears to be acting like a dangerous giant two-year-old stomping all over the world, waving missiles in its hands. And that was even before we elected Donald Trump. (laughs) (laughs) Clearly, the world needs some kind of legal constraint on our actions, because there is no military constraint on our actions. And so... That's that's one of the insights that came to me. I decided to organize the book along the same lines as the three kinds of crime that the first Nuremberg Tribunal used. So those were the crimes against humanity, as I've already mentioned, ordinary war crimes, which were violations of, you know, this sort of gets down into the weeds. But believe it or not, the war, the laws of war actually go under the name humanitarian laws rather than human rights laws. And we could talk about that sometime if you want. But in any case, violations of the laws of war. And then the first crime, which ironically enough, it was the United States and Great Britain that argued for this, was what they called a crime against peace. And the argument was that without the original military aggression of Germany, none of the rest of the crimes, including all the crimes of the Holocaust, would have followed. And, you know, we we tend to think here in the United States, because we didn't experience it on our own soil, that this is a war that took place in Germany and that the Holocaust took place in Germany. But the reality is that most of it actually took place in other countries. And so it's the invasion of Poland and Czechoslovakia that begin this war whose ultimate result is the Holocaust. And so their argument was that Germany had, in fact, violated international law by breaking non-aggression treaties that it had signed, including this one called the Kellogg-Briand Pact, which goes back to 1928, and had, in effect, opened the door to all the rest of the crimes. And as I thought about this, I realized that that's exactly what happened when the United States ginned up its war against Iraq and that, in fact, all of the torture that I had been studying for these, you know, this past decade and a half, all of that torture, it began because the United States wanted to force somebody somewhere into saying there was a connection between al-Qaeda and Saddam Hussein. And so the very first waterboarding, the very first victim of waterboarding was a guy named Abu Zubaydah who is still in prison in Guantanamo and will probably be there for the rest of his life. And what did they want him to say? They believed he was a number one, number two or number three man in Al-Qaeda who had all this proof that Saddam Hussein was behind September 11th, none of which was true, of course, including the part of his being about his being a member of Al-Qaeda at all. But they tortured him in order to get him to say that. Similarly, at Guantanamo, The thing that caused Donald Rumsfeld to sign off on the memo that allowed all of the different tortures that were permitted directly in Guantanamo itself 
was the fact that he was really frustrated, and so was Dick Cheney, that nobody they had yet tortured had yet said there was this Iraq 9-11 connection. So it was the desire to have some kind of pretext for invading Iraq that really was responsible for some of the worst torture that the United States has participated in since 9-11. So in a similar way, that crime is really the fundamental war crime, the making of that illegal war in which, depending on whose numbers you look at, anywhere between 500,000 and over a million people have died, and in which millions of people are still to this very day homeless and either internal or external refugees, all of it as a result of illegal aggression on the part of the United States. And I think the people responsible for it should be held accountable. Well, I totally agree with that. Now, um, I guess in relation to that, uh, my, my follow-up question is, I don't know, maybe one you, maybe one people have asked you before, maybe not, but um, probably reflective more of me than, than of the book. But uh, I think one of the things that's very interesting to me, at least, is that this book has come out in 2016 and not, mm-hmm. in, and not in 2008. And I don't yeah. know, and I don't know that the book would be the same book had it come out in 2008. And I think it's pretty obvious what I'm getting at, namely that what we're what we're dealing with is in 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 many ways a criminal regime, one that is not necessarily relegated to one administration or to the other. It is the empire which functions rather seamlessly transitioning from one to the next. And so um, I want to ask you, I mean, the book, obviously, it's about the post 9-11 period with an obvious emphasis on the Bush administration, but but universalizing this mm-hmm. a little more to a general mm-hmm. truth about what the United States is about. That's something that's really interesting. Absolutely. And the book does, of course, also cover the period of the Obama administration with a, a particular emphasis on uh, on the drone attacks that he authorized directly and personally and the the illegality of those as well. So it doesn't stop with the Bush administration. And in terms of what you have to say about sort of the ongoing logic of empire and inertial movement of empire, I absolutely agree with you. I think on the left, however, there is a tendency to so completely conflate the two major parties that we end up saying that there's no difference whatsoever between them. And we are currently living through a period of time in which we can discern that there is indeed some difference between them. But in my entire lifetime, and I'm old, I've been around for a long time, I can honestly say that the two major parties, the Democrats and the Republicans, have had almost identical foreign policies, policies about the outward facing United States. There have been, you know, some some minor, um, I would say, slightly more than cosmetic, but definitely some differences, but primarily the idea that the United States should project military and economic power around the world in order to maintain its position at the top of the hierarchy of nations. Absolutely, no question about it, that that's an arena in which both parties agree. And it's, you know, very sad to me to to see that in the same way, and I mentioned this in the recent article you talked about, that 
that regardless of who's in power, Congress seems to have completely given up on the power that the Constitution gave it to be the sole power, uh, have the whole sole power of declaring war in this country, and instead has completely abdicated that to the executive branch and said, you know, whenever, wherever, you know, most recently with this rapid increase of sending ordinary Marines into Syria, something that, you know, for all of his faults, President Obama did not do on a major on a major scale in which we seem to be about to do now in the most god awful insane situation in Raqqa that where you know it's you're stepping into such a snake's nest of potential allies and opponents and allies who used to be opponents and opponents who used to be allies that it's you know not even from an instrumental point of view from the point of view of maintaining u.s power in the world does it make sense but yeah yeah i i I wanted to and i do want to return to a couple of the points that you just made but i want to just expand a little bit um the example you gave which i think is you stated quite beautifully about uh nazi germany committing what what the united states at the time deemed the ultimate crime that is a crime Mm -hmm. against crime against peace and Mm -hmm. that that Everything that followed from that was sort of a derivation of that original sin, as it were. And you you pointed out Iraq in 2003 and all mm-hmm. of the torture that stems from that. Mm-hmm. And for me, uh, another example of that, which is often ignored for political reasons, is Obama's war on Libya in 2011, mm-hmm. which mm-hmm. pretty much every expert in African internal affairs will tell you precipitated many of the conflicts that are ongoing right now, including the uh, the horrific humanitarian crisis around the Lake Chad region of oh, Nigeria yeah. and Mali, Niger, yep. uh, that that region where Boko Haram and the rise of Boko mm-hmm. Haram is directly related to the flow of weapons that came out of Libya out of, as yep. a result of that war. I mean, we could go on and on. I could name a hundred other uh, uh, impacts of that war. And so in the same way that we would hold Nazis accountable for the crimes of, the, of, of World War II or the Bush administration accountable for the crimes that came out of Iraq, so too should the Obama administration be held accountable for Libya and for all of the other wars that it has waged directly and indirectly. And this is not to say, you know, oh, Obama's just Hitler. I'm pointing out that this is a continuity of policies, as you mentioned, and that's really the key point that needs to get, uh, to whatever degree possible, embedded in, in America's collective understanding. I, no, I think you're. I think you're exactly right about that, and and I also think that you know, one could be extremely cynical and say that the attack on Libya and the destruction of any kind of governmental structures that they had, and the you know the creation there of a failed state with all of the consequences you've just said you know, you could be extremely cynical and say, well, that's not an unintended consequence. That's an intended consequence. Oh, and I have said exactly that. Yes. (laughs) But, (laughs) but, you know, honestly, I don't, I don't, I am a philosophy professor in my spare time, or at least I play one on TV. And, um, and I don't have access to the internal motivations of you know, other individual human beings. But what I can say is that regardless of the intention, that's certainly the effect. Yes. And it certainly lays the groundwork for things like asking for another 10% increase on the, um, on military spending in the U S federal budget. And, 
you know, the continued what we used to call during the Vietnam War escalation of U.S. involvement in the wars in the greater Middle East, all of that. And it's it's to me, you know, very, very painful in a way, because I I worked in the Obama campaign in the last few weeks, not, you know, not as somebody who had illusions, but as somebody who thought it really made a difference if we had a black president. And I will never forget sitting in a, in an election substation outside of Aurora, Colorado, getting ready to do phone banking on the last day, you know, on election day in 2008. And I sat down next to this woman who's this African-American woman, middle-aged, my age, who woke up. She said, I woke up last night in the middle of the night crying because I realized that a black man is going to be president of the United States. And if we think about original sins, you know, this country was founded on two original sins, the extermination of the people who were already here and the importation of enslaved people from Africa. And I have to say, I now have students who are 18 and 19 for whom the only president they've ever really been aware of until Trump was a black man. And that actually changes their idea about what's possible in the world. And I also, in spite of the fact that I have vast amounts to disagree with, and I think that he actually did commit crimes that are violations of the laws of war and the law and and the laws of peace. Nonetheless, I do still retain respect for the person who is a is was President Obama and the realities that he very quickly encountered. And one of them is, as you have said, that even the president of the United States finds his power surprisingly limited when he comes up against the longstanding powers of the security establishment and the military establishment. And I would say that's even more the case when that president is a black man. Yeah, I'm not. I, uh, I I guess maybe I'd have a bit harsher of a critique than than, than you <laughs> might. Um, but uh, retrospective analysis of Obama is really not what what I want to discuss well, here. But mm -hmm. what I do want to point out, though, and this is also something that I think is is really germane to the discussion we're having, that Bush and Obama, each in their own way, used something um, to sell their wars. And for mm -hmm. for Bush, it was the idea of democracy, spreading democracy. <laughs> for Obama, it was humanitarianism, humanitarian mm -hmm. intervention, intervention. responsibility to protect doctrine, all of these sorts of things. Right. But, but in point of fact, they are essentially the same doctrine. Uh, they, the, the pretext of humanitarianism in the midst of a vicious war, and yeah. I I mean, I've spoken to people who were on the ground under those bombs. There's nothing humanitarian okay. about it. No, about so, it. No. So, so, so the question then is, are the crimes different? Are they substantively mm -hmm. different? Mm -hmm. I, I, I'm not sure that I, I'm not sure that I know the answer to that. Well, it's, I'm, I'm not entirely sure that I do either, to tell you the truth. I think, you know, it's interesting that that President Obama's uh, ambassador to the U.N. was Samantha Power who wrote A Problem for hell, from Hell about genocide and very much argued after having studied 
places like, um, you know, like the, the genocide in Rwanda, that humanitarian intervention was not only legitimate, but absolutely essential. And of course, that was the argument that was used to attack um, to attack Libya. I would say that the argument of spreading democracy that Bush deployed was actually just a, a very thin veneer. I think what he really sold was fear rather than aspiration. I think he sold much more the idea that we had to at- that we had to attack Iraq because it represented a mortal danger to people living in the United States, and that he really based that much more on appealing to fear than to aspiration. But I agree with you that humanitarian intervention, you know, and this goes back, of course, to the model that people like to to draw on when they talk about that, which is the U.S. bombing during the, the war in the Balkans, the under under Clinton, that that was an example of a good humanitarian intervention, where by using military power and bombs, we stopped a war. And, you know, I think in a very simple way, I would generally say that when people are killing each other, it's pretty unlikely that you are going to improve things by introducing the U.S. military into an already difficult situation. <laughs> Well, and especially um, when they're fighting over conflicts that the United States is instrumental in fomenting. In creating to the fir- in the first place. Absolutely. So in terms of whether they're identical, I would say yes and no. I would say that the U.S. continuing occupation and further crimes in Iraq and just sort of the the level of the direct consequences for the people living in that country is a little bit different from the failure to occupy and to predict or to account for what would happen afterwards in Libya. So I think I hold the Bush administration maybe a little bit more responsible for what's going on and continues to happen in Iraq. But on the other hand, these are questions that really ought to be adjudicated Truly, they should be adjudicated in the International Criminal Court. Well, but the International Criminal Court only prosecutes Africans, so, you know. Well, I know that. And that's, you know, and, and the United States under, under Bush, actually, in 2002, wrote to the organization and said, you know, it had never, the, the treaty that created it had never been ratified by the Senate. It was signed by Clinton, but it was never ratified. And so he wrote and said, we are rescinding our um, our signature and it will never be ratified and the U.S. will not participate. And not only that, you probably know this, but Congress passed a law making it illegal for anyone to participate in the ICC trying any American person. And in fact, the law goes so far as to say that U.S. military power will be deployed to rescue anybody who actually is from the United States who is put on trial at the ICC. Some of us at the time called it the invade the Hague law. Mm -hmm. So yeah, the ICC is very problematic. And yet at the same time, it is the direct historical descendant of the of the Nuremberg trials and some of the people who set up those tribunals really believed and hoped that there would be a permanent international tribunal established after the after the trials of Nazis and then the later trials in Japan and there were even people who envisioned that 
the great powers would also stand, or some of the people responsible would also stand trial for some of the war crimes that they committed during World War II. But this, of course, never happened. Right. And so it's, you know, it is problematic. And in some ways, I think, you know, there are many different kinds of courts and different ways of holding people accountable. But the fact that we failed in any way to hold Bush, Cheney, their people or members of the Obama administration responsible for crimes means that someone like Donald Trump and, in fact, the entire field of Republican candidates can campaign for the presidency on the grounds that they promise to commit more war crimes than the other guy. And this is partly because there's no accountability. Yeah, well, exactly. And, uh, you know, I I um I guess I, my point in raising my previous mm-hmm. question was not so much mm-hmm. to say, you know, well, who's the bigger war criminal? Because I don't really mm-hmm. think that that's a worthwhile, uh, you know, discussion. So much as to point out that that by virtue of being in charge of the empire, you are a war criminal. You are will implicated. Will be a war criminal, mm-hmm. and your policies will be war crimes. And that is in the nature of the imperial system that the United States is the head of. And I think that too often people, as even people on the left, you know, get caught up in, you know, well, you know, you, you, well, this, this president did this, but this president did this and this president. Yes, but that's why we call it a system. That's why we mm-hmm. call it an empire. No, that's it. I, I completely agree. The only thing that I will say is that sometimes, and I found this, I worked uh, with the group of people who published Wartime's Tiempo de Guerras, which was uh, actually a paper, newspaper, a free uh, tabloid that we published for about four years, starting in 2002. And it was distributed all over the country for free. And it basically argued that there was another response possible to the attacks of September 11th besides the one that we were engaged in. And the idea was to sort of respond to this all war, all the time approach. And, you know, we all were people of the left who definitely had an anti-imperial, anti-imperialist analysis of what was going on and an understanding of the U.S.'s empire. But there's this other phenomenon that I've observed, which is that we can forget once we fought through to understanding, because it's not something you're taught in school, the nature of that system of empire, we can sometimes forget that in spite of the fact that it is the most powerful empire in the world, it may not and will not last forever. No other empire ever has. And that we can be bamboozled into not recognizing either the agency of other people, other countries, or potential weaknesses of the empire itself. And if we're going to, if we're serious about in some way bringing it down and curtail, or at least curtailing its power in some way and eventually seeing it collapse of of its own weight, we have to be able to recognize its weaknesses and find places where we can drive those wedges in. Yeah, exactly right. And and I would say the same thing for capitalism. You're you're there you go. You're, you're presented with the idea that capitalism has always been and will always be and mm-hmm. and, and the mm-hmm. reality is that it's only been a couple of centuries really that capitalism has dominated in the way that it has. But um 
I want to I want to quickly before we before we go to break, I, I just want to talk a little bit and I guess maybe we'll pick it up after break. Uh, you published an article, I guess it was a couple of weeks ago now, entitled American Carnage Fighting the Forever War. I believe it was on Tom Dispatch and possibly mm-hmm. also in The Nation. Um, and. This is a really great article. It's what oh, it's thank what you. yeah, it's what it's what motivated me to contact you to get you on the show um because it talks about the concept of war and how the our, our very concept of war has really evolved in recent years. So, can you talk a little bit about that process that you described in the article about the evolution of war and then the 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 main focus of the question though is what it tells us about the evolution of the American psyche in the 21st yeah. century because because I think it says as much about us as it does about war. I th- yes, exactly. So what it says about war is that I think in my lifetime we have gone from understanding wars as discrete events with beginnings and endings to take examples from my lifetime, the war in Korea, the war against Vietnam, that glorious invasion of the island of Grenada, the, you know, the that brief invasion of Panama, but all of them as as events in time that had beginnings and endings to the current state in which we are essentially always at war and can expect to always be at war. Now, I'm not under the illusion that during the times when we were not officially at war in the past, we weren't involved in uh, all kinds of subterranean and, you know, uh, sort of what they called during the the wars in Central America, low low um, impact, low intensity warfare, yep. and which of course was high intensity for the people experiencing it. So I'm not saying we weren't involved in wars, but we were not directly deploying our military. We were fighting proxy wars, and you know since 1991 and certainly since 2001, we have been fighting war, all war all the time. And we've come to the point where we no longer even ask, under what authority are we sending all these extra people, these new Marines, for to take a single example, to fight in Syria? How does it happen that we have people fighting in Somalia? How does it happen that we are fighting in Mali? I mean, when did we declare these wars? And so, as you know, as you know from reading the article, I, among other things, go back into some literature, and one of the books that I remember very well reading as a young adolescent, because we all did, because in those days it was considered the great anti-communist screed, right, is 1984. And in 1984, the people in Winston Smith's country, which is Oceania, which has... um, which is sort of a big amalgamation of your of large parts of Europe and the United States and in this in this society people are kept going and are kept in support of the society by the belief that they are under direct attack and occasionally bombs do even fall from one or the other of the two other great powers of the day and they are kept in line by having their hatred for the enemy 
constantly stoked. The enemy is constantly presented as this, you know, these terrible people who do terrible atrocities. And um, who knows, maybe they even did. Probably Oceania, if it had existed, would have been committing atrocities too. But this hatred and this constant awareness that there is an enemy is what keeps the party, the government, in power in Winston Smith's world. And there's this extraordinary passage in the middle of the book when it's it's this period of time that's called hate week and during this week for for seven days the entire country is built up to this crescendo of hatred for the enemy and so the description is of winston smith the protagonist being out in a square somewhere with hundreds of thousands of people listening to a member of the party giving a speech about the terrible atrocities committed by the people of eurasia when all of a sudden somebody runs up on stage and hands him a little piece of paper which he carefully reads while he still keeps on talking and in the next phrase, it turns out that we're actually fighting East Asia, not Eurasia. Yep. And in fact, it becomes clear that Oceania not only is at war with East Asia, Asia, but we've always been at war with East Asia. And Eurasia has always been an ally. And I think it was Gore Vidal who called the United States the United States of amnesia. Yep. And this very sadly is the case. I think we are a people who are now getting completely inured to the idea that our personal survival, our safety, depends on being involved in a perpetual war against this constantly rotating enemy. One day it's Iraq, another day it's Iran, another day it's, you know, Syria or at least it's Assad in Syria, and another day it's Al-Qaeda, and another day, no, they're actually our allies in, in Saudi, you know, in Saudi Arabia's allies in Yemen. And it just, it doesn't matter because the war is constant. The enemy changes, but the war never stops. Well, and, and, and yeah. you know, the war never stops as in, as in the, um, well, allegedly, as in 1984, although there is debate <laughs> among scholars as to whether it's a real war or not. But regard, right. regardless right. of that, regardless of that, um, so the war never stops. And something else that never stops is the hate. And, yeah. and, and that, you know, in the book in 1984, you know, the two minutes hate, they flash yep. Manuel Goldstein's face and everyone right. rages and rages into this, like, you know, orgasmic sort of orgiastic furor. Um mm -hmm. If you ever, if you ever see, if you ever see somebody, um, you know, on the right watching Bill O'Reilly or a liberal watching Rachel Maddow, it's actually pretty similar. I mean, mm -hmm. you'll see them yelling at the screen, like, you know, oh, everyone, these, these, the people on the opposite side of me are such, you know, fucking idiots. They don't know anything. They, they're just stupid. God, this, they're, they're destroying America, you know, and and this is literally what you hear on both sides. And in fact, if you probe even a little bit, you'll find that both of them are perpetuating 
propaganda and lies. I mean, whether it's, you know, pushing for some kind of insane conflict with Russia over some imaginary mm-hmm. nonsense versus, you know, pushing for expanded wars and torture and all of the rest of that from Trump. I mean, it's almost, it, you know, I've, I've described it before at last week's episode with Chris Hedges. I, I used this example as well. It feels like we're traveling through Dante's Inferno. And so we're going in a circle, but each successive circle is going deeper and deeper. deeper deeper it does sort of feel like that however on the other side i would like to say that i have been absolutely flabbergasted by the number of people who never thought of themselves as politically engaged and never wanted to be politically engaged until this last election who are suddenly saying what can i do to get organized, what does it mean to be able to, in fact, take back some tiny modicum of democratic power in this country? What would it mean to be able to be part of a movement that could actually make change? And that, to me, is incredibly inspiring. I see it in my students who are, about half of them are young people of color and Uh, A third of them are first-generation college students, so they're the first in their families to go to college. They are, you know, um, students of all different kinds of of disciplines, including a lot of business students, who are suddenly saying, you know, I need to do something about this country. I need to do something about – and, of course, a lot of my students are terrified because they're either, you know, on DACA, deferred um, deferred. Uh, access for uh, children of, of oh, what's it called? You know what I mean, DACA. Yeah, the, sure. Yeah, Deferred Action for Children um, of, of Immigrants. And also we have students who are undocumented and we have many Muslim students and they are all very much afraid. But they are also really brave and standing up and in their classes saying to their fellow students, I'm undocumented, will you have my back? Oh, you yeah. Know, if yeah. I on campus. And I have to say that's that's heartening. So once again, I don't want us to fall into the trap of thinking that change is impossible. Oh, absolutely. And f- quite the opposite. Uh, one thing we talk about on this show, uh, at least a, at least once or twice a month with a guest is about solutions, about how to uh-huh. build resistance, building uh-huh. solidarity networks, all of those things. Um, I don't think that I don't think that it's about so much, um, you know, well, they're all the same. So there's nothing we can do about anything. It, it, it's not so much that it's about pointing out that what we're dealing with is a system. And as, uh-huh. as people begin to understand increasingly that it is a system and that the system has birthed its most evil ghoul yet in Donald Trump, you know, that they understand that Trump is in many ways the culmination of a, oh. of a, of a series of processes that have been ongoing uh-huh. rather than some kind of monster who'd sprung out of, you know, Zeus's Nowhere. head or something. Exactly. You know what I mean? No. And, and, and yeah. that's the danger because that's the mythology that liberals are pushing these days. Uh, you know, Democratic Party apparatchiks especially, right? Oh, just wait till 2018 in the midterms, right? We'll take all of this energy on the streets will transform it into a movement to sweep Democrats back into power. This is the logic of the political exploiting class. And the question is, are we going to be able to build a resistance that is independent of that? Honestly, speaking as someone who lives in California, I would also like to see a resistance that is able to go into that system and take hold 
of that, you know, for a long time here, the Democratic Party, even though we have now majorities in the legislatures, was sort of an empty husk. And if somebody had decided at the time to get, you know, and there were people who did, but if more had to actually find a way to subvert that existing structure, we would be in a different situation today. One of the other things I think, and this is, you know, something I, in my anarchist um, 20s, might not have expected of myself, but it's partly something that came out of doing American Nuremberg. I have more respect for the rule of law than I have had at any time in my life. And I no longer see it only as this kind of superstructure on top of a political and an economic system. But I think that law is one of the ways that human beings make it possible for us to live with each other, in spite of the fact that we have very differing interests sometimes. And honestly, if we're serious about what we're about, one of the things we have to be serious about as a resistance movement is, what does it mean to govern? What would it mean if we were actually able in 10, 15, 20 years to unwind these systems and be in a position of being the government? What does it mean to govern and what would our responsibilities be? And how are we preparing ourselves for that? Because it's one thing to be willing to live constantly in resistance. And I think, you know, that's a perfectly legitimate and respectable position because no government is perfect. But at the same time, I also wonder, do we not need to start thinking about what it would mean to govern in a democratic way to actually open not only the institutions of government, but all the institutions of our society, our education, our workplaces, to genuine democratic government, and what are we doing to prepare ourselves for that? Yeah, and I think the key question there, which we don't have time to go into now, is what would be the vehicle for that? Because, uh-huh. uh, you know, we just saw in this last campaign, you know, with the Bernie Sanders, with the Bernie Sanders movement, an attempt to not only pull the party to the left, but it, it essentially mount an insurgency within the party. And we saw what happened to that insurgency. And and I, I think, again, it's it's the question being, you know, do you want to plug the hole on a sinking ship or do you abandon ship and find a better mm-hmm. one? You know, right. we, we, we're not going to find an answer to that right now, but no. we, we have to take a break. Um, on the other side of the break, a lot more to discuss with Rebecca Gordon. You're listening to Counterpunch Radio. We will be right back. Now over there in Managua Square with America made bombs falling everywhere. Kill women and children and animals too. These bombs are made by people like me and you. And we told we hold a big stick over them But I know, what I've read That peace is in our hands Over there in Guatemala, my friend We're making mistakes there once again Uncle Sam supports a fascist regime That doesn't represent the people over there And we learn and believe There is justice for us all And we lie
And we're back here on Counterpunch Radio. I'm chatting with Rebecca Gordon. Again, you got to get the book, uh, American Nuremberg. This is a very important book. It came out last year. Uh, put it on your put it on your wish list, on your Amazon list, or the various other lists that you think people are checking, but they aren't. Um, <laughs> and uh, you know, ask your friends, ask your mothers, ask your children to get you a copy of that book. Uh, okay, now I want to. Pick up uh, where we left off before the break, but I want to kind of transition a little bit because we have, um, you know, this this. Well, I've been I've been variously referring to him as Midtown Mussolini and uh, uh, Trumpel Stiltskin, which I still believe that I I coined. do like that one. I also coined lump uh, Trumpen proletariat in case oh, very anybody good. wants to use that one as well. But um, do I have to pay royalties? Yeah, well, I've already made the joke, and I haven't seen any checks, so I guess I guess you're in the clear. Um, <laughs> But anyway, um, one of the things about Trump, uh, you know, and I, I, I've talked a lot about this in recent weeks. So listeners who are regulars, I, they're like, oh, all right, yeah, we got it. But um, Trump is in many ways a, a, a sort of a, a transition for the ruling class. He is a transition in the empire, a transition away from paying lip service to humanitarian causes, mm-hmm. paying lip service to democracy, mm-hmm. paying lip service, uh, you know, to American exceptionalism and its righteousness. And right. instead, so where you have George Bush saying, you know, you go to war in Iraq to, you know, save the world from weapons of mass destruction or to spread democracy. You have Obama saying, we got to, we got to destroy Libya for humanitarian reasons. Instead, now you have Trump who says, yeah, let's uh, we should steal the oil. Right. You know, exactly. And, right. and that to me is is it's not a difference in substance, but it is a difference in rhetoric. And I'm just curious your assessment of what that change in rhetoric tells us about the empire in 2017 versus, say, in previous decades. So I think that you that you were right, and I think that words matter. I think rhetoric matters, partly because a large part of how we think is using language. We think in words. And so if the dominant description of what the United States not only is but ought to be becomes simply a, a country whose primary and only interest is America first – the definition of America being, you know, a little bit unclear, which Americans are we talking about? But America first, that does, that kind of, of rhetoric does change our conception of ourselves in ways that I think are dangerous. Now, I actually think this is a process that began at least under the Bush administration when we were told essentially that the United States, in order to keep us as citizens safe, would have to work the dark side, that we would have to do things that really you shouldn't bother your pretty little heads about and you really shouldn't want to know what we're doing over here. But we'll let you see a little bit of it just so you can understand how serious things are and how hard we're working to keep you safe. And we were we were led away from those sort of, and I call them virtues, of things like courage. Courage is the virtue that allows you to stand still in the face of danger and say, there is something that is more valuable, perhaps, than my own personal survival, that there are things that I am willing to take a risk for. But instead, we were led to say, make this fake deal with the government 
in which we essentially said, do whatever you have to over there on the dark side. And I, I will countenance that. I'll allow that as long as you promise me that I will always be safe. Now, that, of course, is a lie because the truth is no government, no amount of surveillance, no amount of torture, no amount of you know internal surveillance and internal control can prevent a couple of disaffected guys from Chechen from blowing up the Boston Marathon if that's what they want to do. And I say this as a person who has run marathons and, does, and has no desire to be blown up. But the truth is that we were sold this idea that our primary interest should always be, first and foremost, our personal survival, and that the government could essentially give us immortality. It's a lie. We're all going to die. The government can't do that. So building on that, we now are moving on from do whatever it takes to keep me safe to do whatever it takes to make me rich, do whatever it takes to make sure that my country has access to all the goods of the world because really they all belong to us. And it also builds on the absurd idea that as the United, as the empire goes about securing all those goods, that somehow they're all going to actually trickle down to ordinary working people, which of course they aren't going to, and they don't. And you know, we see the latest proof of that in you know the current attempt to take health insurance away from somewhere between fourteen and twenty-four million people. So, yeah, I have to say it it is a shift. It's a shift in rhetoric from we are noble and nobly defending, you know, even though that was a lie, the human, hum, the human rights and the lives of other people to our nobility consists in defending ourselves. And I think that's an important shift. I think it makes a difference. And I don't think it improves sort of us as, it doesn't improve the national character if you want to talk about something like that. I think it's um, very dangerous. Absolutely, and it's also in the in the grand historical tradition of fascist imperialism, because essentially, right. essentially, the argument that Trump is making is really no different than the arguments that that Hitler made, or uh, arguments that uh, Mussolini made about invading Abyssinia in, in nineteen thirty seven uh-huh. or whatever it was thirty seven. I think it was. Um, you know, and, and essentially, then what we're talking about is that Trump is in in many ways. A, a throwback, a return to an almost 19th century conception of imperialism, one in which the, the, the colonial exploitation is naked and transparent and, and mm-hmm. on display for everybody versus the 20th and 21st century variant or certainly the post-World War II variant, which saw America as, you know, the beacon, the shining light, the right. one who fights on principles and, and is city inherently good and all of these things. And so... You know, it's a question. Yes, it's about rhetoric and, and and tactics and all of that. But it's also a question about the transformation. I think of the imperial mind in the twenty first mm-hmm. century. I think that's right. Although I would say that when we use the words "mind" and Donald Trump in the same sentence, we need to be a little careful because it's a very odd mind we're dealing with. Sure. So my question really is not so much what Donald Trump says. But what is it of what Trump says that the the system wants to seize on and amplify and what will they try to deprecate and quiet down? 
And so I think what's interesting is not only that Trump says America first, but that Trump's handlers or, you know, the people who are fighting over the marionette strings are perfectly happy to see that transformation of rhetoric, that that's that's something that they find you know, acceptable and valuable. Well, of course, that they didn't what trying to dampen. They didn't select the phrase by by chance. You know, they know no. what the history of America First is. They know the history of the fascist movement. They they chose it quite consciously, and uh, I think it's certainly uh, indicative, uh, if not totally the ideological framework, then certainly at least the tactics that they're employing. I think that uh, Steve Bannon is is mm-hmm. is a lot is a lot more skilled than a lot of people think he is, and I think that he has. Has uh, an ideological clarity that only only the you know the 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 real true believers in in fascist movements have you know and um, mm-hmm. I, I think that we should be I think we should be careful not to blunt just how severe and scary what the and administration sinister. and sinister yeah. what the administration is and what it represents and i think that brings me to another element here that ties back into your work uh namely this question of torture you've brought it up before mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. Uh, i want to talk about it in the in the context of trump because we had the bush administration they were obviously torturing we had all those debates about waterboarding and the black mm-hmm. the cia black sites in romania and all over mm-hmm. the middle mm-hmm. east and elsewhere uh including in countries that thailand are now, yeah right syria uh, and many others yep. um so we know that history uh and we know of course that under obama some of these policies were rolled back some of them were forbidden new ones were developed and you know all kinds of various uh you know dark secrets that i'm sure will emerge in some wikileaks file somewhere at some point but um now we have trump and trump even campaigned on mm-hmm. i believe the phrase was waterboarding and a whole lot a whole worse. lot worse yeah a hell of a lot worse a hell of yes. a lot worse so yes what does that mean for us? Us now, because I mean, I can imagine. I mean, I don't think that what he's talking about is ne- you know he doesn't have it in his mind necessarily. Well, we're going to have the Iron Maiden, and we're going to have the rack, and we're going to have the you know drawing and quartering of people. You know what I mean? I don't think that he thought it through. But the statement is certainly indicative of something. What does it indicate to you? I would say that among other things, it indicates that sort of the title of that earlier book, "Mainstreaming Torture," has been completely has been completely vindicated. It's been achieved. Torture is now a mainstream, legitimate subject of discussion, potential so-called weapon in the so-called war against torture, and that it has been rehabilitated as an approach to the problem of security in the world. And Trump is simply coasting on that. And, you know, when you say he's not talking about Iron Maidens and so forth, I think one of the things people don't understand is, and you won't until you sort of look into it, is that the ways that people use and deploy torture today look as though they are not as terrible as forms of torture that produce blood, say. But the reality is that you can cause just as much physical pain to somebody with the so-called stress position as you can with an electrical current. But the difference is that in the stress position, the person is doing it to himself. 
his own body becomes the instrument of torture and what the CIA discovered when they looked when they did research on this in the 50s and 60s is that this is actually a much more powerful way of destroying a human per- being's social and and political and personal world than something that appears to happen to them externally so yeah i think that what trump is is doing is simply making concrete the potential that's been there for a long time that uh, torture should become part of our official accepted arsenal of weapons next to nuclear weapons and cluster bombs and landmines and all the other weapons that are in fact illegal under the laws of war. Why not add torture? Yeah. And, and, you know, if you actually read through the various techniques that, that have been used by the CIA and private contractors, mercenaries, and others, I mean, some of these things, it, it doesn't seem so bad until you close your eyes and imagine it happening. You know, like, for instance, you know, I read about one where I believe they it, sleep deprivation for days at a yeah. time, and then they stick you in a room with a strobe light and mm-hmm. heavy metal music blasting mm-hmm. for mm-hmm. Like, three days in a row. I mean, that, that would be enough to drive me insane after five minutes. Oh, absolutely. And and it does. And people talk about people who've been tortured very often will say of all the things that were done to them, the very worst was being exposed to a loud stimulus like that, like music that you cannot get away from, yep. that that was far and, you know, and it will drive people to try to kill themselves. And I should also point out something that we often don't think about, which is that there's another site of torture. There's another place where torture goes on essentially in plain view all the time in this country, and that is in our own jails and prisons. Yep. And it's no accident that there is a connection and a revolving door between people who are in the military, people who work as prison guards, those and people who are in the police. Those are very often all drawn from the same pool of people, and they have very similar kinds of training, very similar ways of initiating people into those organizations. And, you know, it's no accident that the people at Abu Ghraib, who were not the uh, the paid torturers upstairs, but the volunteer reservists downstairs, who were, you know, setting the conditions, in private life, almost all of them were prison guards. And there's, in fact, a famous email from one of them, a guy named Fredericks, who says, you know, the Christian in me knows it's wrong. But the corrections officer in me loves to see a grown man piss himself. And so, you know, when I talk about torture in prisons, I'm talking about solitary confinement, which can cause a person to develop signs of psychosis within a couple of weeks. And in fact, um, Chapo Guzman's lawyers were complaining in court this week that he's having auditory hallucinations after being in solitary confinement in the U.S. for a couple of weeks. So there's that. There's regular systematic rape as a tool of of discipline and a tool of compulsion. There are all kinds of other ways that people are tortured in the U.S. prisons, and it's considered something perfectly normal. So that is that acceptance which frankly goes all the way back to the very beginnings of slavery because it's no accident too that the people who are targets of torture 
both in the so-called war on terror and in prisons, are primarily people of color. And very early on in U.S. history, before there was a United States, but when the tobacco uh, economy was first developing and there was a shortage of labor and they brought the first enslaved people from Africa, the farmers very quickly discovered that unlike the indentured servants who could work for seven years and eventually at the end of those seven years were going to get a piece of land and their freedom and be able to farm themselves, these new people were never going to get a piece of land. They were always going to be enslaved, and so were their children and their children's children. And what the white farmers figured out was the only way that they could give those people an incentive to work was to make their bodies suffer, to make them hurt. And so the idea of black bodies, black human beings, as legitimate targets for torture begins at the very beginning of their presence here in the United States, and it continues to this day it, all the way through the traditions of convict leasing, of lynching, all the way into today of the fact that even now, if you look at the 19 states where students are still allowed to be beaten in school and you download the statistics from the federal from the education department, you will see that black boys are much more likely to be beaten in school than any other group of people. So this idea that it is legitimate to torture some group of people, unfortunately, runs all the way through our history and up into our prisons today. So in some ways, what Trump is doing is new. And in other ways, it's simply a continuation of something that's always been there. But in some way, it's been invisible to many people. Since we're a little short on time here, I just want to touch on a couple of other points before we go. Um, one has to do with an interesting meme that I've been seeing over the last couple of months, and this is, I think, rather dangerous among liberals in particular, of course. Um, you know, and, and I have friends who identify as liberal, so I'm not only using liberal in a pejorative sense of the word, but I mean as a socialist, as a lefty, you know, I, I can't help it. But um, – Anyway, the, the the issue about the CIA or the deep state being at war with Donald Trump, this is something that yeah. we've seen over and over yeah. and over again. Uh, a lot has been written about it. A lot of ink has been spent talking about this. Uh, I've, I've spoken about it repeatedly on this show and elsewhere. Um, and I don't necessarily want to get into the debates about, you know, well, to what extent is that true? Is it partially true? Not true? But what I want to say is this. The logic that a lot of the liberals have been using about the CIA and Trump, wherein the CIA is all of a sudden our friend. Friend. Our yes. friend, because they're going against Donald Trump, This my the, the enemy of my enemy is my friend kind of logic, is so obscenely uh, narrow-minded and, and, and so despicable in every way. And I just I have to get your take on this. I mean, to what extent do 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 the liberals who are peddling this narrative even understand how ridiculously stupid they sound? I don't know the answer to that. I did write a piece about this for for Tom Dispatch a few weeks ago, actually, because I completely agree with you. It's it's absurd that we should suddenly after all these years of working against the, the work not only of the CIA, but the 16 other 
you know, security agencies and the whole national security apparatus to suddenly think that because some of them are um, are throwing a few stumbling blocks in front of Trump, that they have become miraculously the defenders of liberty and the, uh, you know, the upholders of all that is right makes no sense to me. And and I have to say that um, I see this more on more, I would say, as you say, among some liberal writers than I do on the, you know, on the real left. But there is this tendency to sort of look over there for soccer and to also sort of assume that even after all these years of lying to us and the rest of the world, suddenly the national security apparatus has had this change of heart and now they all tell us the truth. You know, at the same time, I will say that there is a certain tendency among some people on the left who perhaps were fonder of the Soviet Union than I ever was to assume that because Putin is, um, you know, because Trump is, uh, seems to be fond of Putin, that on the one hand, that doesn't mean we should necessarily all hate Russia. But on the other hand, I'm not convinced that it necessarily follows that Russia and the Russian and Russian society and even Russia as it is under Putin is a, you know, an unmitigated force for good in the world simply because they represent some kind of some kind of a polar stop to the United States. No, that's and, the that, that's a that's a simplistic analysis that I think some people put forward, you know, but but I don't think anybody serious would say that, you know, Russia uh, is some kind of, you know, haven of anti-imperialism or anything like that but certainly <laughs> certainly well no and i mean my my views my views on russia have gotten a little bit have transformed i would say over the last 5 years as well because i have seen times when russia has been a very important restraint on mm-hmm. the united states and particularly on nato in eastern europe and yes, elsewhere absolutely. certainly the you know, the example of the us is uh, bush's and then obama's insane missile shield for eastern europe right. which they right said was about Iran, but which was obviously more about Russia, Russia, you know, I mean, there's, there's many, many examples uh, that we could point to. Yeah. And they have a reason to be nervous, Yeah, but they also have their own interests, which are not necessarily the interests (laughs) of the places where they are all. Oh yeah. You mean like, yeah. You mean like supporting Trump and, and, and the fascist Le Pen and uh, the UKIP and Brexit and every other far right fascist political organization outside of Ukraine in Europe. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. So, you know, uh, but, but my point is not so much about Russia or any of the, of the rest of that. My point is to, again, highlight the fact that the discourse around Mm -hmm. Trump from Mm -hmm. the, you know, from from liberals, which really are center-right, to the conservatives, who are now the far-right, to the far-right, who are now the fascist Uh right, you know, I mean, the the discourse around Trump, I think, is severely lacking. This idea that this, because elements in the CIA and the deep state and, and military intelligence and whatever, that they're at war with each other, that that somehow means that we're supposed to take sides in that. This is exactly. absolute nonsense. Exactly. No, that's exactly right. And and in fact, the fact that they are at war with each other is something that we should take note of. And exploit. And, 
and exploit exactly but not not used to suggest that they are therefore suddenly that those organizations are suddenly you know beacons of light absolutely not and you know i have friends who grew up in the cia as you no know, children and and teenagers and i i know a little bit about the culture of the organization which is you know there's this huge divide that goes all the way back to the princeton boys that were running the oss who did not by the way include my father um but who who um really have a very different culture and tremendous contempt for the people who do the wet work in the CIA, the operations people. And that's a wedge that exists. Now, I'm not going to argue that, therefore, I like the people who think what they do is collect intelligence and that they're not doing terrible harm in the world. But that is a place where there's a real difference within the agency. Just as, that, just as there's yeah. a constant squabbling between civilian intelligence and military intelligence. Right. Right. You've got the CIA who hates the fact that there even exists a, a, DIA. Right. a DIA. You know, They hate the fact that the Pentagon and JSOC and all of these other little subsidiary satellite you know, uh, alphabet soup organizations even exist. So we know that those divides are there and Trump has really, I think, brought some of those into... Uh, even more stark relief. That being said, of course, I think the analysis should be of the the, the conflict that's happening rather than cheering on one side as right. they attack or the another. Other. Yeah, right. Absolutely, I completely agree. All right. Yeah. So, final point. Since uh, we're just about out of time here, but uh, I say final point. This could take a few minutes, but uh, <laughs> you know the. The question of movement building, which is something that we talk a lot about here on this show, I think that this is really critical because, as you mentioned in the in the first part of our conversation, it is exciting, it is inspiring uh, to see so many people, millions of people, many of them young people who have only really yep. known President Obama, getting involved, getting excited, and I've had battles about, you know, uh, you know. Uh, People who have said, well, where the hell were they, you know, when, when Obama was bombing Libya and where were they when this was happening and where were they when that was happening? No, well, no, no, no. You know, no, everybody they... comes to these things at their own, you know, own from time. their own perspective, from their own time. So now here we are. We have Trump. We have a huge influx of people who are politically engaged, politically motivated. And my question is, how do we take an anti quote-unquote, an anti-Trump movement and make it into something far more broad-based and far mm -hmm. more significant, an anti-war, anti-imperial, anti-capitalist movement. To me, an anti-Trump movement is, and I hate to be so cynical, but I've already seen it happen, an anti-Trump movement is a guarantee for a 2018 Democratic Party election campaign. That is what inevitably will emerge out of that in the same way that MoveOn.org and all the rest of those organizations tried to take the momentum of the anti-war movement during the Bush years and push it for the Democrats in 2004, 2006, and then eventually by Obama's time it was a little bit different. But how do we create a broad-based movement that is not an anti-Trump movement, but is an anti-war movement, an anti-imperialist movement, an anti-racist movement, one that is bigger than Trump and bigger than the Democrats? Well, for one thing, I think maybe it needs to start out not being so much an anti-anything movement as a movement in support of a different vision for how we could live. 
that, um, and again, this is a question of rhetoric, but it's also a question of what is it that we want to project to other people as a different way of living to make it possible to imagine, you know, under, under uh, Thatcher in England, there was this saying, there is no alternative. And she meant there was no alternative to the changes that the conservative, the Tories wanted to bring, including the breaking of the labor movement in England. And so part of what we need to be projecting, I think, is the idea that there is an alternative and that we are for a world of, you know, of welcome, a world without racism, a world that celebrates uh, equality, a world of where none of us are living in tents on the street, a world where all of us have an opportunity to flourish as human beings. So that's part of it. So one piece is definitely there's a lot we oppose that's in the way of getting there, but we need to have a picture of where it is we want to go as much as we do of what it is we want to tear down. So that's one thing I would say. The other, um, you and I will probably disagree on because I think that electoral politics is one of many arenas in which we do have to be prepared to fight. And I don't know whether it's going to be, you know, on the basis of preventing of, of the Democratic Party or a third party. I'm honestly, I think third parties do better and are more important in the work that they do locally. And I would love to see third parties really do their work in local organizing and build from the ground up rather than, you know, every few years running somebody for president. So, you know, honestly, if we have a Democratic sweep in 2018, my friend who now has health insurance for the first time in her adult life is not going to regret that. And real people's lives are going to be affected domestically by changes that could either be made or prevented by that kind of a change in Congress. So I'm not going to say that's the wrong thing to do, but it's not the only thing by any means. And I do think that you're absolutely right. We need what we used to call a popular front. We need a broad popular movement against all of this. And, you know, I'm not sure, honestly, I don't know what the vehicle for that is, except to say that what I see happening here in the Bay Area is just astonishing to me. Twice now on each side of the Bay, there have been meetings called for workshops in how to do organizing. And the or, the people who planned them thought they'd get two or 300 people. The last one was held at Mission High School. They were ready for 300. They had 1,500 people and had to turn people away. And this is because people were looking for not to be told what to think, you know, not to like workshops in which they would be told, here's the line. But they were looking for workshops that would tell them, how do I actually help people get, and myself, get organized? actual on the ground techniques. Where I teach at USF, the community partners, I teach what's called community engaged learning. My students work in local community-based organizations as part of our, my ethics class. And we had a group of faculty and community partners that we work to come to the McCarthy Center, where, which is part of where I work at USF, and say, we need workshops on community organizing. What is that? What does it look like? How can we do it? And so we partnered with Causa Justa, which is a local organization that does really important work on tenants' rights and housing here in the Bay Area. 
And we did a series of two workshops on community organizing because these academics came out of the woodwork and said, you know, I don't know anything about how to actually build a political movement. What should we be doing? So I have to say that I'm heartened by the fact that this seems to be going, there's indivisible, which seems to be a bunch of white people who've never been involved in politics before, who are suddenly holding meetings. They have a meeting in every single, they have at least one one group in every congressional district in the United States. Now, they are not the Democratic Party. They are just ordinary people who want to do something about changing the direction of the country. The question is, you know, is there a candidate for a national vehicle to, you know, to sort of organize and pull together all of that work? Honestly, I don't see it yet. I don't know what it is. But the one thing I'm sure of is that an old white lady like me is not going to be the one to lead it. Well, yeah, I mean, you never know. <laughs> they, 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 I'm not going to make my comments about Democratic candidates and potential candidates. But uh, in, in, any, in any case, um, I, I, will just say, I will just say that I think that um, what you're saying is true. And I, I, I certainly wouldn't suggest that there's no value in electoral politics of any kind. Um, what I will say, though, is that there's a reason we call the Democratic Party the graveyard of social movements, you know, mm-hmm. because that it is in effect where social movements go to die or where they go to become sanitized or where they go to become part of the corporate structure. And that's we what, have that, seen that. That's, we, and I will say that, you know, although the Democratic Party does have different, um, different national policies than it has international policies and ones that differ from, from the Republicans, yeah, to a large extent, I would say that, um, you know, certainly as a bearer of of revolutionary fervor, the Democratic Party is a very weak vessel. Well, and I don't even mean just revolutionary fervor. I mean, we have to remember that the, the, the Democratic Party since Bill Clinton, since 1992, has been in effect an appendage of Wall Street. I mean, it is in, in, uh, invariably tied mm-hmm. to Wall Street and to finance capital, true. which underwrites all of the imperial policies. So that's, that's, that's why I guess I'm a little bit more skeptical about the idea of uh, any real substantive change coming from the Democratic Party. Certainly uh, putting a check on Trump is not going to hurt things. I'm not, no. you know, with a Trump in the White House and a, de- and a Democratic controlled Congress, maybe that makes more gridlock and maybe that's better for us. But that's a question of uh, political calculation, not uh, revolutionary organizing. And that's really what, mm-hmm. I'm, what I'm most interested in here. But anyway, we're out of time. Unfortunately, we could go on for a long, <laughs> long time talking about all of these issues, but I want to give a, a, a plug once again, the book American Nuremberg, the U S officials who should stand trial for post nine 11 war crimes. Very important. Get yourself a copy of that. Also mainstreaming torture, ethical uh, approaches in the post nine 11 United States, the website mainstreamingtorture.org. Follow Rebecca on uh, Twitter at Amer Nuremberg, Rebecca Gordon. Thanks so much for coming on Counterpunch radio. It was a real pleasure. Thank you. Listeners, thank you as always. Chat with you again next week.